0: Welcome back to new books in Hindu studies. I'm your host, dr. Raj Balchran, and this morning uh, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carl Stefan Boutiet from Ghent University on a uh, very new very recent publication, Hot of the Presses Dialogue and Doxography in Indian Philosophy. Hello, Carl and welcome to the program. Hi, Raj thank you for inviting me oh, my pleasure so why don't you tell us um, a little bit about maybe the, the 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 publication series that this is part of? I think that would be quite relevant.
1: Yeah, well, uh, the book is published at Routledge in the series Dialogues in South Asian Traditions, Religion, Philosophy, Literature, and History. Uh, and actually, I feel that the topic of the book is quite appropriate for the series. And that was also the idea of the uh, one of the series um, director i'm pretty happy about it uh because it's i feel it's a series that has published quite a number of great titles so i'm very uh, humbled uh, to be part of it actually i
0: felt sort of the same way i had the good fortune of publishing with um rutledge um, both books now the other ones out this week maybe at some point i'll do a flip interview on that one but it's it is humbling it's 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 quite uh It's um, quite a respected publisher. And so um, your book is part of a series on dialogue. Um, You know, before we even get into the book, you know, there may be um, uh, readers, listeners out there who, however educated, may be slightly stumped by the word doxography. And they may need to go look up doxography. (laughs) So how about you tell us what doxography is and perhaps how it applies to, to your research and and, and and how it informs your research and perhaps even how, how your research informs the use of that term.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good idea uh, to begin with that. Obviously, doxography is not uh, a common word. We're more more used to the term perhaps biography, right? Perhaps we can relate to uh, the two terms. Like a biography is normally somehow of a, a retelling of a BIOS, right, the telling of a life a life story. Um, whereas a doxography is, um, let's say, a, a text or a content of a text which focuses on doxa, so on opinion, uh, views. Especially in the Indian context, it's uh, what we call doxographies are somehow compilations of views or. Uh, parts of text or full text again that uh, discuss uh, what the Sanskrit term uh, darshana mainly covers, right? So, I mean, there are other terms with a similar semantic, but uh, often actually doxographies in the Indian context have darshana in the title. Um, now, what exactly is uh, doxography? That's part of the job here in the book to elucidate that. Um, the term itself, doxography, was coined um, by uh, Diels, Alexander, Hermann uh, Alexander Diels, if I remember properly, a German classicist. Uh, so the term uh, was coined to um, uh, denote, I would say, uh, mainly, the, I mean, text or parts of text, Uh, found quite profusely in uh, the Greco-Roman world, although there are doxographies that are Islamic and Christian. Uh, So mainly when we say, if we identify a single text as a doxography, it would be a text in which you will find uh, a list of different views. Um, But then they have so many different kinds of doxographies And it's kind of part of the debate now in the field. Uh, Shall we use a narrow view on doxography or shall we use a broader view? Uh, Andrew Nicholson, I think, did a very good job already in discussing doxography. He opted for adopting a narrow view. So he would say text that discuss views without too much argument. So it's kind of a mere listing of views. Uh, and I think that was perhaps useful for his own work, but I, I have adopted a broader definition of doxography. So uh, I have given in the book quite a, a formal definition of what I yeah, what I uh, understand by doxography, but perhaps we need not here to get into those formalities. But let's say that it's either a whole text or a part of a text where Competing views of philosophers or different schools are presented right uh, following a certain division of topics and so forth Um, Now these texts have uh, often Been uh, viewed rather negatively in the Indian context. They have been blamed of being inaccurate very often or yeah uh, they have also been used, I find, in a more historiographical, uh, manner. So scholars use these texts sometimes to date, um, some philosophical contents and so forth, uh, to try to say, well, okay, if that text comes from that period and talks about this particular view, then we might, yeah, uh, deduce that, uh, that view was in vogue at that time and so forth uh and although this is something that we can do obviously with doxography i try to do something else and i view them uh, in a rather different manner for me these texts were not meant to be uh, historiographical but they are dialectical and have uh, a rhetorical let's say uh often i mean a rhetorical approach and uh, well they all have a structure of their own and so forth and this leads me uh, to uh, see these texts as perhaps practical texts as uh, having what i call a spiritual dimension so they can be seen as spiritual exercises and this is i believe quite a new approach uh, to such literature so Tell us specifically which literature, which
0: texts, which views. Maybe you can talk about the organization of the book a little bit while you answer that.
1: Well, uh, so for that book, uh, when it started, I thought I could uh, work on five different texts. But then uh, this would have made a very big, (laughs) very big book and a lot of research. And what I decided is to focus on three different texts coming out of three different sectarian context um so i've used uh i mean the first text that i used to let's say to to launch the book right it's the uh sixth century text from Veka, uh buddhist magyamika philosopher the text is the magyamika Hridayakarika, so the uh the heart the, the heart of the middle way um then the second text is actually uh, quite well known. This time is a Jain text of the about 8th century, the Samuchaya from Haribhadra Suri. And the third text is perhaps more problematic uh, because of its authorship, which is, um, uh, it's not obvious to figure it out. Uh, the second, the third text, sorry, uh, is the Sarva Siddhanta Sangraha attribute it uh, to Shankara, and the datation of that text is also not obvious, so uh, let's say that uh, the the Advaita tradition tries to say it's from Shankara, so then we could say, well, it's from the time of Shankara, but it's most likely a text uh, from minimum of perhaps 10th, 11th century, and perhaps as late as 14th century, so this is uh, still a contentious topic. Um, so these are the three texts that I work on, but um, you know, I could not work on this, these old texts uh, altogether because the MHK, for example, the Magimica Hidia cardica is, is enormous. So I had to focus uh, on chapters. And I what I did is I selected one chapter of each text. So I took uh, each chapter on the Mimamsa view uh, and that I believe gave some coherence to the book as well and there are several reasons why I, I uh, selected that chapter of each of the texts. Um, one of them perhaps which I uh, I found very compelling is that since I am trying to show that these texts have uh, say, uh, practical dimension, right? That these texts can be seen as spiritual exercises. I'm, I'm locating these, uh, say, these exercises within, uh, I would say a philosophical yoga or in more, say, Sanskrit term. I try to show or to, uh, locate these texts as a practice that is meaningful in the context of Jnana yoga, right? The yoga of knowledge. And, uh, so when I, choose the Mimamsa chapter, here is interesting because Mimamsa is often associated with, let's say, the Karma Yoga or, the, or whatever, path, not Karma Yoga, but to Karma, to, uh, to the performance of sacrifices. Uh, and there is a kind of opposition often between uh, these, uh, the promoters of yeah, the path of knowledge and the path of action. Uh, so I try in the book as well to uh, illustrate that uh, uh, opposition somehow. And in each of the chapter I come back a bit and see where this path of knowledge and how it is promoted and how it makes sense. Uh, so I would say that either of each of these three authors could define their approach, or at least their philosophical approach, uh, as a form of jnana yoga. So that's about it uh, in terms of uh, what texts I engage with, uh, primarily because obviously I, I have to discuss a bunch of other texts on the side, but these, these three are the main focus.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about how you engage the texts?
1: Right. Uh, well, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, the book in itself, I think, should be somehow uh, visualized uh, as a plant somehow, right? It grows and uh so the tree main, so that the, the stem, let's say, right, has three components, and out of the tree uh comes different branches. So depending on each text, there are some uh uh that some different elements of focus in the chapter. But uh, first I try to locate each of the texts in uh, in their sectarian context. So, I will talk about Madhyamika, for example, and, uh, well, the author by Viveka, you know, uh, what is his Madhyamika approach and how is doxography meaningful in that uh, sectarian context. That's become quite important uh, to read the text. And I do the same for each of the texts. So, I try for the Samuchaya to locate this doxography uh, within the um, let's say the sectarian environment of Jainism, and I try to here uh, elucidate you know what's the need here of of a doxography. How can it contribute, and how can doxography be a spiritual exercise? Yeah, in the context of Jainism, and then I do the same with uh, Advaita. So that's let's say a, a main branch. Uh, I also try to read uh, in the context, I try to read the text not only as spiritual exercise which would kind of perhaps uh, essentialize, you know, these texts as being merely spiritual, but I want to uh, also uh, somehow relate the text to the uh, political, let's say, environment, or so the socio-historical context, which uh, um somehow influence yeah and uh, influence the development of doxography uh especially in the m h k chapter so the chapter on uh, bavi uh doxography I give a longer perhaps historiographical context in uh trying to elucidate uh the development of um uh, apologetics and of debate and competition between different schools how did that come to be yeah especially focusing let's say from the 5th 6th century onwards, where we see new development in heuristic uh, and so forth so that's another main uh, component that I somehow discussed in each chapter and then perhaps a third of the main components which is related yeah to the nature of the content of those doxographies. So these doxographies, I explained before, they list views. And so I try to um, reflect on what are views and why are views uh, important, uh, yeah, for philosophy, obviously, but why are people who are uh, engaged on a religious path, let's say in Buddhism or in Advaita or in Jainism, why is it meaningful for them to engage with views and what are you know wh- why do they have not only to learn their own views but why do they pay attention to the views of others and this somehow leads me to um uh, discussion of uh let's say this principle of the conventional views against uh, ultimate views And I somehow suggest that all the views listed in doxographies are always to be taken as conventional views. And it is through this kind of, uh, say, dialectic of engaging with Competing conventional views that the doxographies are trying to direct the practitioner, let's say, here the philosopher or the thinker, the public, the reader of that text. So these texts are trying to engage the uh, practitioner towards the ultimate view, right? And it's in that sense that I suggest that these texts can be seen as spiritual exercise. So they make use of conventional views, to repeat in order to establish somehow an ultimate view. So that would be three a kind of theoretical uh, components that come back in each section. But then, yeah, each uh, section has more, I would say, little leaves and flowers and branches touching on other topics. Uh, for example, ones, uh which I try... Uh, With uh, Bhaviveka's texts, uh, by the end of the chapter, I discuss irony and humor in uh, Bhaviveka and this is a topic which I uh, felt was really seldom discussed by um, philosophers, people who uh, study Indian philosophy. Perhaps because we tend to be too serious. I don't know why, but whereas we find a lot of discussion, for example, in classical studies with Socrates and so forth uh, on irony and, you know, the, the function of irony and humor and philosophy, there's very little about it in, uh, Indian philosophy. Hence, in Bhaviveka at the end, I kind of touch upon it because I actually see a lot of irony in Veka's work. And I wanted to uh, illustrate that a little bit and reflect on its function, perhaps, and why do we see that here? Yeah. So why would you say, I, I think I agree with you in terms of the general
0: trend, but why would you say that um, it's it's sort of um, uh, against the trend to, to note irony and humor in these works? Like, what would you say is at play in terms of trends in scholarship that you are um, sort of shifting with with your uh, ironical read?
1: Well, uh, well, I, I don't know here if I'm like a shifting a trend or... Well, I, I, when I discovered irony in Babi work, then I started to look around. So is there people theorizing irony in Indian philosophy? And I found practically nothing. Uh, so I would say one of the reasons why I'm saying this is, is because I've been looking for... People who actually engage with uh, this uh, this topic, and there is not much on it. But then, if we reflect on why is that so? Um, well, that's a, actually a pretty good question, I guess. It would, that should be um, a, a discussion on its own, perhaps, because a lot of the approach, you know, uh, perhaps we could take that uh, line of inquiry. A lot of the approach uh, that are taken uh, are. Uh, Philological, philologically oriented, right? So they, you know, kind of break the text in pieces and focus on small elements here and there. Or again, or again, sorry. If it's uh, let's say a philosopher, not a philologist, who's engaging with text, often the philosophers themselves they they focus on let's say uh, a topic, yeah, the self or uh, you know uh, epistemology and so forth. Which kind of breaks the text apart again and then tries to uh, kind of uh, isolate yeah the topic and go into the logical technicalities of that topic, whereas I think to see humor we have to take the text more as uh, as a whole as units, and then we see perhaps like patterns here uh more uh, clearly when the text is not just broken down. And when we see that text is meant to, to talk to people, uh, is meant to not only seduce people with rational argument, but as well um, with, um, uh, let's say, more uh, psychological um, yeah, methods, yeah rhetoric and so forth. So I don't know, yeah, it, it, these are just suggestions. Um, but, what I know for sure is that the idea uh, of uh, irony and humor in Indian philosophy hasn't been uh, much explored so far, and I am only sketching yeah an attempt in the book because that's not the main focus but uh,
0: yeah well part part of the reason i I sort of uh, uh, take us to this footnote uh, <laughs> of the main purpose of your project to talk about um. Parts of the text perhaps may have been overlooked in previous scholarship, is because you know I suspected that it, for the very same reasons why the texts that I look at haven't been um, read the way I read them, I suspected the same to be true of your texts. I mean, we're both textualists. Um, I look at narrative texts, epics, puranas, um, and you look at philosophical texts. Uh, but the the one uh, the one Key methodological uh, 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 inclination innovation for me is finding a way to look at the text as a whole Mm -hmm. Um, before slicing and dicing, because you can often yield a, a fair bit by the slicing and dicing. But the first step is to look at the text as a whole. And I just suspected it might be similar with your subfield. So I thought I'd just drill down and see if it was the case. So it's interesting that you have the same supposition. Um, Now, more to the the heart of your project. There are a couple of terms that you use that I think would be useful to drill down on further. Um, When you talk about the... um, First, say something about uh, the distinction between the conventional view and the ultimate view that you see the interplay between the two that you see in the doxographies um and secondly um could you please unpack what you mean by spiritual exercise in this context
1: sure uh all right so uh well perhaps let's say begin backwards i think it would be perhaps easier yeah with with the spiritual exercise what i mean there um I take that term, uh, and I think it is well known now uh, from Pierre Adot, right who was a classicist and work on yeah different uh, greco roman um philosophers uh his approach to philosophy tried to somehow uh, break away from a previous approach. Uh, which were a bit like we said, right? Breaking down the text and uh, seeing the text as uh, merely kind of uh, perhaps intellectual yeah, formation and then looking for systems and so forth. And you try to say, well, the people who are doing, uh, who are writing these texts, they are involved in, in, in a practice, uh, a certain practice of philosophy which defines their lifestyle and the text that are spiritual exercise are meaningful uh, in the sense that they contribute to this lifestyle. Uh, more especially, uh, especially, what is quite meaningful to me, as spiritual exercise are meant to somehow bring about a change, a shift in perspective. They are meant to uh, transform views, to inform views as well, but mainly need to transform them. And ultimately, by transforming views, right? it is thought that They can transform uh, the the practitioner in that sense here, the the philosopher, right? So when I uh, talk of doxographies as spiritual exercise, then I want to denote that they are meant to uh, not only to inform, yeah, but to transform the views. So in that sense, they are never neutral, right? It is, uh, in a sense, they're not just giving some information about views and that's it. Uh, and that is perhaps uh, a way that they have been misread. That's something I suggest in the book. But in the past, yeah, people often blame doxographies and doxographers for being inaccurate, uh, for wrongly depicting views and so forth. So in that sense, they, uh, they would, they, uh, the critique would say that, well, these doxographies, they are not informing us properly. And that might be the case because, I mean, there are a lot of different problems in the information that doxographies provide. But if we see these texts as not seeking merely to inform but to transform, then we can start to see that perhaps where there is misinformation, there might be uh, some rhetorical strategy at play here. There might be a reason why there is uh, misinformation. And in that sense, it's not that the... Doxographer is only, uh, which is possible, but it's not that he, he is only not uh, well informed, but it is perhaps because he has another project and then he uses his approach to views, yeah, in a certain way to inflect, yeah, perhaps uh, the meaning of some, you know, some ideas in order to uh, direct the reader towards a better idea. Yeah. In the end, I think that I suggest that each doxography suggests uh, a best view. Yeah. And ultimately, now that will lead us to the second t- topic. But ultimately, they suggest uh, or they try to lead the uh, the practitioner in that case here, or in the other you know, philosopher, they, they try to lead him or her to the uh, ultimate view. But what do I mean by uh, conventional and ultimate? Now, this is a common trope, let's say, in uh, Indian philosophies, especially those uh, who uh, seem to adopt what I call the Jnana Marga, the Jnana Yoga, the the path of knowledge. It is a topic that we find in Buddhism, but equally uh, in Jainism and in Advaita, that is why, actually, I, I use that as well, because I see it there, and it makes sense. So what is a conventional view? I would say this is uh, every view, right Every view that is conceptual, every view that is using words, uh, every view that is um, laid down yeah, on, on paper in text, or uh, something that can be uh, understood yeah, by different uh, means of reasoning, different pramanas. All of these views yeah, would be said to be conventional. Uh, and that is uh the, as I say in the tree system that I listed, yeah, they they uh talk about views and they talk about that other, let's say that ultimate perspective, that ultimate view for the Buddhists, that would be uh, shun, Shunyata, for example, right? The the uh, the ultimate perspective, which is not a view itself, right? They would say that ultimate view is a non-view. Um in Jainism, you had Kunda Kunda talking about uh the, the, the distinction between the, the two views, the the uh I'll say conventional and the ultimate. For him, the ultimate is actually the perspective of the soul itself, um which is somehow non-conceptual, non-verbal. And similarly in Advaita, you have Shankara using this uh, para paravidya, this uh, yeah. Uh, non-ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, knowledge. And for him too, let's say the ultimate is Brahman, right? So the ultimate is the perspective of Brahman. But then comes a the problem, is that how do we establish, how do we get there? How do we establish the, uh, the ultimate? How do we get to the ultimate perspective when all the means that we have are conventional? And this is where I see actually the meaningfulness of, of doxography, for one thing, but also of philosophy, right? So the question of how to establish the uh, ultimate view brings the question of how to use views, the conventions, how to use philosophy, which, yeah, in its, uh, it's a rational, conceptual dimension is always conventional. So how do we use the conventional to get to the non-conventional? How does that work? And there, uh, in each system, in each sectarian context, you have different strat- strategies that are laid out for that purpose. And I argue that we can see these strategies, these strategies are at play already within uh, doxographies, at least within the doxographies that I have reviewed.
0: Well, it it seems clear to me, just to comment on your, your earlier uh, point, it seems clear to me that these texts certainly have something to sell uh, in the ancient Indian marketplace of ideas and that they're engaged in selling what it is they're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do so, they're going to um, upplay or downplay other traditions. You know, they're not, no less so than when you turn on the television in the modern day and look at um, a, a news channel, right? Yes. The Although they are, uh purportedly reporting facts, certainly it's 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 far from only that. There's gonna be a spin, there's going to be a um there's going to be a a perspective, a viewpoint that is being sold, uh, a lens through which the facts are emphasized or deemphasized. And it just seems intuitively to me intuitive to me that certainly that would be the case for these ancient Indian texts as well. So I'm I'm, um, surprised to hear that they were um, maybe dismissed as inaccurate representations uh, in in earlier uh, stages of scholarship.
1: Yes. uh, Well, that is likely due to uh, the fact that people who actually looked at doxography looked at it for some, uh, they looked at, those doxography for their content, uh, contents. Sorry, more than the, for the text as a whole, right? And so they will look at, they will kind of break the text apart and say, well, this idea doesn't fit in that context here, or this is not, or something is missing, and so forth. And so the uh, the uh, the text were not considered, I think, uh, as a full unit. Yet to come back to what you said, the uh, thing. Um, and say that each system or each doxographer has something to sell. I think the analogy here with marketing is is more than a metaphor. I think really somehow these doxographies have a marketing strategy. And I am inclined here to tell you um, a story that that came to me once I was in Dublin and I was visiting the Jameson uh, whiskey distillery. Uh, with my wife, it was yeah, after Christmas, we were visiting around. And they gave us a tour of that distillery. And at the end, they gave us a, uh, a degustation, right? A tasting of of different whiskeys. And I thought it was very interesting how they had set up that tasting. Because it, it immediately reminded me of one type of doxography that I was dealing with in my work. Because what they did is that uh, they gave us three different whiskies. And there was one that was a Jameson, but there was also the whiskeys of two competitors. So there was one that was a red label. They started by giving us a red label whiskey, then a Jameson whiskey, and then they gave us um, a uh, Jack Daniels, if I remember properly. And they gave us, with every whiskey, a little bit of information, which was very systematic. It would be where it comes from, how it's made, and its price. And then you would see actually that the two first ones, let say the red label and the Jamesons are rather similar in taste, but the red label is actually more expensive, whereas Jameson is more affordable and then you would move on to the uh to the Jack Daniels, and then you would see that it is quite cheap, but it also doesn't taste very good at least you know in the in the context here yeah, of the people. so you see that they were systematically using their competitors to uh, illustrate you know to kind of uh, sell their own product and I thought that's very fascinating But that is here doxography used for um, whiskey marketing and this idea of putting let's say the Jameson in the middle recalled to me actually the strategy at play in the Jaina doxography uh, that I am evaluating in the book that I'm Analyzing the Shadashana Samuchaya, which I, I argue there that what Hari Badra is doing is he is putting his system in the middle, in between, you know, different competitors, and there are clear signs that he is suggesting that his is the best. Yeah. Anyway, so I find it much. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> if if I wasn't muted just now, you would hear me laugh out loud. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> it's uh. uh it's a great story, and I think it's it's a, it's sort of a, an intoxicating metaphor, pun intended, <laughs> um, for this. So I had the good fortune uh, for a semester of teaching um, at Ryerson University. It's um it's a very very urban university in, in in an extremely diverse city of Toronto, and I taught world religions. And at the outset of the class, I said, you know, we are going to look at the world's religions in the marketplace of ideas. What are they selling you? What is it going to cost you? What is their value proposition? Is it worth it to you to invest in them? And, and they, um, and they really resonated with that with that approach. Um, so it's 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 it just makes me laugh thinking of some of the conversations had <laughs> in that class. But that, but that's a great example, and 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 it's a great marketing strategy actually. Um, I've never taken a business course in my life, but in 2015, I started entrepreneuring so I could teach and stay in Toronto and teach online, teach in person, and, and do one-on-one coaching. And so I've learned a thing or two over the years. And apparently, <laughs> when someone makes you three offers uh, uh, in a sales context, it's the middle one they want you to take.
1: Actually, <laughs> so they'll give you
0: i will a- give you one that's like you know you know if you want to co- you know I don't usually use these strategies because generally um, people find me through word of mouth. Yeah. Through, you know, a friend or colleague will have a great experience and then they'll, they'll they'll decide to refer me. But, you know, I'll say, you know, you can coach for me for like, for like one session and it'll cost you this. <laughs> or you can coach with me for like a month and it'll cost you this. Or you can coach with me for a year and it'll cost you this. And really it's the month I'm trying to sell you. <laughs> it's the middle one, right?
1: Yeah, yeah um, I get it.
0: I, I find that fascinating. So tell us about, you told us, uh, tell us about some of the, 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 uh unique uh differences among the other two case studies you looked at. Yeah. Tell us about how these are quite different as well.
1: Alright, so actually uh so the the book itself starts with the MHK I said, right? So the, the Bhavivekas text, it's Majamika text, uh Majamika Rida Yakarika. And then the second is Samuchaya, and the third is uh, Sarvasiddhanta Sangra. And there's also a reason why I chose this kind of progression because Actually, it's uh, the dialectical strategies at play here, the teleology of the text. By teleology, I mean the order of presentation of views. Um, It's kind of coherent. So uh, if we look at the MHK, what I'm uh, suggesting here when we take the text as a whole is that uh, Bhaviveka starts uh, by presenting uh, views that are Buddhist. Well, first of all, he... uh, The first three chapters, especially the third one, kind of make a unit. But the third one here uh, presents different categories of Abhidharma Buddhism. And Bhairiveka somehow uh, presents and criticizes this category to show his own perspective, which is the no view of Madhyamika, right? Madhyamika tries to kind of... uh, uh, grind to pieces, normally every kind of view to show that they don't have uh, inherent nature, that nothing has Svabhava. So in order to establish this kind of known view, the view of the void, if you want, uh, Bhaviveka here um, presents different uh, yeah topics of Abhidharma, and that somehow uh, shows his own position. Without naming it right without saying this is me or something like this right so there is no like chapter that says my view no it doesn't work like this you have this kind of first three uh, chapters that establish let's say uh, the perspective of by by emptying out the categories of abhidharma and after that you have two more schools of buddhism uh and afterwards, you would have the different, uh, say, uh, Hindu school like Samkhya and so forth. And the last one, it's, uh, the one I was working on, the Mimamsa. And here I suggest that the strategy actually is that the, the further you, away you stand from the, say, the initial position. So the further away you are from the first three chapters, the further you are from truth. So it's kind of a descent into absurdity. As these are words I use in the book. So that is the kind of uh, method, the dialectic and the teleology of uh, the MHK, I suggest. It's kind of a descent into a doctrinal absurdity. And here, Veka is a bit like the philosopher in Plato's cave. We kind of, uh, you know, Go back in the cave and takes you wherever you are, you know, in, in the darkness and tries to lip you, lift you back up, you know, to light, let's say, by destroying the arguments of each of these, uh, each of the presented system, right? So, if you understand me, that here the dialectic is kind of a descent into absurdity. Then the second text, the Jaina text, you have um, well. This has been uh, discussed by uh, quite uh, many uh, scholars, and interestingly, most scholars have tended to say that there is no strategy in uh, the Shadarsana Samuchaya that is just a random display of view, and that is supposedly because of the Anekanta Vada principle of Jainism. So he just sees all these views more or less as you know equal, and he randomly presents them. But that's actually not the fact they are I mean it's called a you know, compendium of six views, but in fact, there are seven. And the fourth one is the Jaina one, which makes three views before and three views after. and also the views of, uh, of uh, Haribada, the, the view of Jainism. Is the only one that is uh, presented with a kind of praise, you know, praise of the Jina and so forth. So it's clear that that is the best view. Uh, now I have a series of other arguments that uh, I believe will be criticized and rightly so. I have different means to suggest that, but uh, in any case, I say that uh, I see the the strategy at play here in Hari text is to. Uh, Present his view as the center of world philosophy, kind of Mount Miru, yeah, of uh, philosophical position. It is the central station, and to have to occupy that central position uh, in Jainism is not random. I suggest it has actually desirable is the best position one can have in order to prove that and as i say i have different um yeah different uh, arguments but so here the uh, idea is kind of an idea of equanimity, each views are let's say equal yeah from the from a conventional perspective but Stamyak Darshana, the best view is only the view of the jina and one should somehow Get that point, and by adopting the view of the Jina, then one can adopt, I mean, can somehow uh, get to the ultimate perspective, which is beyond views altogether. So, to repeat, the MHK of Bhaviveka, it's the best view is at the beginning. In Haribhadra, the best view is in the middle, and then with the pseudo Shankara or the, the Sarva Sangraha, the best view, the view of the Advaita, stands at the end. Right, so here we have a progression where uh, each view somehow is kind of each first view is negated by the second, and slowly we progress from the gross to the subtle. Now this is interesting as well because the people who have talked about uh, such uh, schematic in the um, the uh, in the Advaita. I have sometimes compared uh, this method with, uh, I think that was here, Andrew Nicholson, who compared that method yeah, to the dialectic, in, uh, I think he said Hegel, if I remember, or yeah, in any case. Uh, whereas, actually, what I'm trying to I- highlight here is that that strategy, this idea of going from the gross to the subtle, where uh, each new view kind of enlarge the perspective of the previous one, is actually a pedagogic strategy that we find already in the teachings of Shankara when he comments on different Upanishads and so forth. So that was noted, yeah, by uh, uh, different uh, Jacqueline Hirst, for example, different scholars. So this uh, pedagogic strategy is really in tune with uh, the let's say the teaching. Of the Advaita, with the pedagogy of the Advaita, so it's somehow natural to see it repeated within the uh, Sarva Siddhanta Sangraha. So if you heard me well, uh, I I would say that each of these strategies, yeah, of each of these texts reflect actually the uh, pedagogy or the propedeutic of the different system that built these uh, views, that built these doxographies. So and I think that is uh, perhaps a a surprise, you know, if we're, it's interesting when we see it at first, but it is actually uh, most probable, it's uh, coherent uh, somehow. Uh, And also it suggests that there are no doxographies, or at least these three doxographies are not neutral. Doxographies are always a form of marketing, if you want to take that metaphor.
0: Well, the the observation that you make regarding the structure of the text, um, I think it's 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 profound that these texts are organized in these ways. Uh, I, yeah, I you know I study very different texts. Um, nevertheless, um, it, my entire thesis actually was based on what I can learn about the David Mahatmya based on its structure first looking at the first thing and the last thing and the middle thing that's just a, uh, a methodological strategy that I had so internalized uh, it took me quite some time to actually put it into words and connect it with uh, Mary Douglas's work on ring composition mm. sort of um, pervasive um, uh, um, compositional strategy probably Pre-literate, we don't know where um, it's there and back again, right? It's it's it 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 the, the 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 first connects with the last. The middle is more important, right? So um, uh, I won't say too much about that at this point. But but this is the, the the it is clear to me that there is a profound interplay between content and form in. Uh, ancient Indian particularly Sanskrit texts
1: yes yeah
0: go ahead sorry. no it's fine they're they're orchestrated in such a way so as to guide exegesis or at least uh, aim to do so by their very structure um and I think it's and 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 I think we should look at the text as a meaningful whole first, regardless. But I think, especially given how uh, the profound interplay between between content and form with these texts, we do uh, a great disservice um, to, to to our search for knowledge through these texts when we um, when we dismiss the, that orchestration. Um, and then proceed to, to look at bits and pieces of the texts.
1: Yeah, indeed. Actually, that's this uh I was even tempted to say that when it it comes at least to doxography, uh the let's say um uh, to take that uh um uh saying from uh what oh no his name escapes me, that famous Canadian theorist of communication uh where it says that the medium is the, the message, right? That's, that's a McLuhan, I think, exactly. So I think in doxography, the medium is the message more than the particulars. Although the particulars are interesting, it's really the medium here that it, like somehow informs, uh, like say, the play, how, how things are, are to happen. But more than a formal characteristic, I think we can also reflect back on these patterns with each, within each sectarian context, to somehow gain an insight on how they perceive their position in the world, how they interacted with others. And that is where perhaps there is more, um, say, a notion here of dialogue and so forth. So how did they use others somehow to, to uh, portray themselves? How did they relate with otherness? But also, how did they perceive themselves? right and it is especially uh, clear in the case of the advaita text when you have a group of people who put themselves really at the top uh, of the ladder somehow uh, you know you have here a, a very strong claim that might reverberate beyond yeah, the spiritual world to impact the political world as well yet to be fair uh, each uh, each of these authors and each of these systems perceived themselves as the best but they will express it differently, and these nuances have um, uh, consequences, as I said, yeah, beyond the mere uh, philosophical world. Uh, there is here, I would like to explore that more. I try in the book to uh, let's say, reflect on that a little bit, but uh, there seems to be yeah, a, a, a whole set of coherences here. Between, let's say, the sacred and the profane, the the spiritual and the political.
0: And so, um, maybe this is a good point to ask what what next, what more? How would you like to continue this research?
1: All right. Uh, Well, that's... uh, (laughs) There's, there's just so many ways right one could uh, continue. So I could go on uh, looking at other doxographies. And you know, that's something I suggest in the, in the uh, conclusion right? that people perhaps should do further research and seeing different types of strategies that exist. Now I've outlined three, but perhaps there is more. Or perhaps within the same sectarian environment, for, for example, within Jainism, Perhaps there are different strategies that are used by doxographers and what does that tell us and so forth. So these are ways that one can go. However, for now, I I decided to not engage with that immediately because I wanted to uh, somehow have a bit of fresh air and touch upon new material. But I continue uh, somehow with the idea of lists. So um, doxographies are a list of lists. All right, so you have a list of... Views, a list of darshanas or a list of yeah, um, philosophical systems, which are presented as list of topics. For example, the uh, for example list of darshanas and list of what not that constitute um, somehow these views. And the whole idea of lists and making lists uh, captured my attention, and I I wanted to go uh, back in time rather than to move forward and try to find other doxographies when there are plenty of other ones, but rather than go on further in time and examining further doxographies, I wanted to go back in time at the idea of making lists itself. So what is the relation of these doctrinal lists to philosophies? What is the relation of learning all these doctrinal content, uh, the relation of that to one spiritual, let's say, uh, path, one ritual journey. So I started to reflect on the uh, list making itself as a Say a spiritual exercise as a contemplative practice, and this can be very broad for those who read in in Indian philosophy will know that almost every text is a list of lists, and there are just an endless amount of lists. So, one could, you know, approach this topic in so many ways. Um, And this is what I'm doing at Gantt, that is uh, the project for which I'm funded by the FWO. Uh, As of right now, I am using lists as a as a way to reflect on rituals and I am prone to see lists as, actually as a ritualization of knowledge. And I want to theorize say a passage from I'd say uh, a time where uh, ritual was quite dominant in the uh, uh say social religious sphere of India. Um to a time where we have now, let's say, systematic philosophies of what we exactly call darshanas, right? And I want to look at this kind of passage from, let's say, more ritual life to a more speculative life through the topic of lists. And um, I mean, now it perhaps seems quite up in the air and had something else in the book, so I don't want to uh, uh, engage too long on that. Uh, But there's a lot of what one can do i even uh every day now I try based on my reading and reflection, I post some photos on on Instagram or snippets of thought related to list and list making and so forth so if our uh, listeners want to uh, go on my Instagram and have a look and they can see the different reflection that this can bring about, but really uh so I'm interested in that idea that. Actually, when we talk of Indian philosophy and especially of philosophy as a spiritual practice, we are actually looking at uh, how knowledge is formed and to transform. And here a list becomes very important because lists come about as, let uh, say, ritualized forms that are meant to be incorporated, or that are meant to be transformed. And then ultimately we will see that these lists and these forms are, let's say, uh, mapping out the conventional world, and some will suggest that they have to be uh, relinquished. They have to be abandoned in order for the ultimate view, somehow the ultimate perspective to dawn on oneself. So that's also fascinating. Here we have, let's say, a, a, a pedagogy that teaches an endless amount of lists ultimately to suggest that we have to let go of all these lists uh, and i find that fascinating so i'm um, uh, writing now and researching around that topic as a kind of continuity from doxography for well, these methods and these engagement with list will ultimately become yeah the content of doxographies
0: well that's certainly fascinating and at, at this stage of of any project, it should be up in the air. It should be expansive. It should be creative. It should, you shouldn't uh, so limit uh, or curtail your thought process. Right now, that certainly sounds like an idea worth pursuing, and it would be interesting to see what comes of it. And should you publish a subsequent book, <laughs> <laughs> and and should I still be uh, doing this work, then we'll, <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to uh, interview on that as well.
1: I will be most happy. Yeah, certainly. <laughs>
0: So um, you mentioned your Instagram account. I am, uh, <laughs> embarrassingly, I'm a social media uh, uh, novice. <laughs> I literally joined Twitter last month. Um, I think it was to, to help promote something for Penguin. And so why don't you give folks your, um, your Instagram um, handle?
1: Oh, yes. You mean uh, verbally? Yeah. Uh sure, why not? I'll list it as
0: well. But there are those there are those who may welcome to the website. But for example, for those who get this, this podcast through Apple. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, no problem. Uh, be listed.
1: So uh I what I did is I kind of make an, an anagram with my name. So it's KXB and then uh with an underscore list with the S. So KXB underscore lists in plural. That's my uh, Instagram name. By the way, I'm quite new to all of this as well. It's actually my wife who uh, convinced me to uh, give it a shot and see how I like it. And then I, got, I grew uh, very fond of it. <laughs> I'm using photos of my previous uh, travels and life in India well, I stayed in India for quite a few years and I have quite a data bank of images that I use for these photos. Uh, and I try to make more uh, recent ones as well up and so forth.
0: Sounds great. So, so um, for those of you listening, once again, we have been speaking with Dr. Carl Stefan Boutiyet uh, from Ghent University on his very recent publication. Um, and now I don't have the publication title handy. It's a uh, doxography. Uh, sorry, dialogue and doxography in Indian philosophy. Uh, for those of you. Um, out there stay safe uh keep reading keep thinking keep listening uh take care until next time